Jeremiah chapter 10. Laura's going to read for us the entire chapter. And uh, it will, as I say every week, be easier for you if you uh, follow along in the Scriptures. So as Laura reads, please follow along. Laura will be reading from the ESV translation. Jeremiah chapter 10. Hello. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and is worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations, for this is your due? For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmiths. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, Truly, this is an infliction, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not. There's no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold it comes. A great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. 
I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and laid waste his habitation. The word of the Lord. I want to speak to you this morning on this theme, a Savior who saves. A Savior who saves. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we go into the word. Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning, that you would uh, speak to us through the scriptures. We pray that the Spirit would illuminate our understanding uh, so that we might not just know intellectually uh, what these words say, but that you might connect these truths with our hearts, that you might give us new hearts even this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A lover that does not love is not a lover at all. A provider that does not provide is not a provider. A ruler that does not rule is not a ruler. A leader that does not lead is not a leader. I could go on with this. A smoker that does not smoke is not a smoker. A fighter that does not fight is not a fighter. A crier that does not cry is not a crier. You guys get, you tracking with my logic here? This is like some really simple logic. Yet every day we are tempted to turn to saviors that do not save. Here's, here's a little reality check for us. Humans, we are born spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. And as a result of our spiritual deadness, we believe in our flesh that a spiritual Savior is not enough. We need a Savior of this earth. We need a Savior that we can create, a Savior that we can make, maybe even a Savior that we can control, but certainly a Savior that we can touch and feel. Well, God has given us a Savior that actually saves. Now, He is a Savior that came into this world. We could, at one time, actually see Him and touch Him, and one day we will. The difference is now we receive this Savior by faith. The difference is that this is not a Savior that you can control. This is not a Savior that always gives us the instant gratification we're looking for. But the difference between this Savior and all of the other Saviors is that this is actually a Savior that can what? Save. Save. So therefore... According to our logic, he actually is a savior. Because you can't be a savior if you don't save. It's just that simple. 
Now, looking at this text, we see that first in Jeremiah chapter 10, this idea of the nations frames the beginning and the end of the text. In verse 2, you see, he says, do not learn the way of the nations. And then in verse 25, he says, pour out your wrath, speaking to God, on the nations. The problem is that Israel is, uh, is, is looking to the nations for some help. Meaning they have God, right? We tracking? But God, the God of Israel, wasn't quite enough for them. Now, they want to keep that God. Don't get me wrong. It's not like in their minds they're saying, oh, we, we just don't want Yahweh anymore. They certainly want Yahweh and all the blessings that Yahweh gives them, including the land. But, but Yahweh is not enough for them. There's, they're now looking to the nations to learn about some other saviors out there. They're looking to Babylon to see what saviors Babylon has, because maybe Babylon can also offer us a savior or two. They're looking to Hollywood to see what saviors Hollywood has. They're looking to the streets to see what saviors are out on the streets. Or maybe they're looking to Wall Street to see what saviors the rich have. They're, they're learning from the nations. They're learning from the music. They're learning from the culture. And they're saying, what is it that people are putting their hope in, in addition or outside of the God of Israel? And maybe we could cling to the God of Israel, but also kind of put our hope in some of these things as well. This is called idolatry. Now, in the immediate context, they're literally building idols. But don't let the, sort of this ancient practice make you believe that this is not relevant to us today. You know, we don't have a whole lot of idols made out of wood in America. That's not really something that we do in our culture. It is in some other cultures, so it's not completely ancient. But that's certainly not something that probably you or I would encounter in our, uh, daily, uh, on a daily basis. But this doesn't mean that this text is irrelevant to us. It doesn't mean there's nothing we can learn <coughs> excuse me, from this text about our own lives. Why is that? Well, it's because we actually have idols. They just don't look like the ancient idols. We have our false gods that we turn to. An idol in your life could be defined as something that you want or something that you're trying to get that if you don't get it, you're going to be miserable. What is that something? Let's think about what an idol is for us. Uh, uh, one author talks about he, all of these different questions. What voice are you listening to, he asks. What voice, are you, what, what voice determines your life, your values? Well, that voice then could actually become an idol in your life or is an idol in your life. What are the things that you hope in? What are the things that you trust in? Here's a test. 
that we can give ourselves. And by the way, what I'm trying to do for you right now, just to kind of let you into my, uh, my, my preaching mind right now, is I want us to figure out what that idol might be before we actually get into the text, all right? So my goal is, is that all of us can define one, two, three, four idols in our life that we are tempted to so that we can be applying this text as I preach it. Make sense? So here's a test that we can use to determine what an idol might be. When you're driving down the road, you're doing this mindless activity. <laughs> Shouldn't it be too mindless, right? <laughs> showering, maybe that's a better one. When you're showering, what does your mind drift to? What do you meditate on? What do you think about? What excites you? Do we normally drift toward God-glorifying things, or do we normally drift toward other things that have nothing to do with the God of Israel? What do we think about? What makes us truly happy in life? What do we call our life? For instance, I've heard songs where they might say something like, she's my life, or you're my life. Well, that sounds nice, it's kind of romantic, but in all reality, that's actually pretty scary. Like, if I say that my wife is my life, I'm putting on her a responsibility that God never intended for her. If I say that my kids are my life, I'm going to try to suck life out of my kids. If, if, if you say that your job is your life, this is my life. It's actually wrong. Meaning like if you lose your job, you don't die. <laughs> right? So it can't actually be your life. But when we start finding our life in these people or these things or these possessions or these jobs or these title, titles or the amount of money that we have, we're actually turning what is actually good things, we're turning them into idols. Another way you can ask this is this. It's a fill in the blank. If I don't get fill in the blank, I am miserable. What is it? If I don't, and don't answer, this is all just internal uh, uh, reflection at this point. This isn't a time for corporate confession. If I don't get blank, I am depressed. If I don't get blank, I feel like I have no identity. If I don't get blank, then I feel like I'm worthless. Whatever you're filling in, in that blank right there, this is an idol in your life. You say, well, I, I, I love God. I, I love Him. I really do. It's genuine. Right. You can actually want God in your life. But the question is, 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 is he enough? Or do we want God plus a bunch of other saviors which the world can give us? And if we are looking to anything else as our savior, then ultimately what we're saying is that God is not my savior. That's what we're saying. Can Babylon give us a savior which saves can Hollywood give us a Savior which saves? Can the streets give us a Savior which saves? 
Can our music give us a Savior which saves? Can money give us a Savior which saves? Can the gods of sex give us a Savior which saves? Who is a Savior that can save? What do we need in a Savior that can save? Let's go into the text. I see four things in this text that define for us the God who saves. The first one is this. The God who saves is a God who has all power. We see this in verses 2 through 7. The God who has all power. I read a story of a man named Blue. He was a gangster in Chicago back in the day. He was brutal. He was scary. He ran the corner. And one day, Blue disappeared from the streets. So a woman noticed that and went looking for him. She found Blue in a church. She went into the church that Sunday, and Blue had joined the usher team, wearing the white gloves and everything. Welcomes her into the church. She sits through the entire service, and she's in tears. She comes forward at the end of the service, and the pastor says, what was it that moved you? What was it that brought you here? Why, why are you here? Was it, was it the singing? And she said, no, it wasn't the singing. Was it our facilities? We have wonderful facilities. No, it wasn't the facilities. They're nice. Was it my, my sermon? It was my sermon, wasn't it? No, it wasn't your sermon. Though it was all right. She said, I came here today because I wanted to meet the God who had the power to change a man like Blue. We, a, a savior, the God who saves, is a God who actually has, <laughs> wrap your mind, this is a complex truth, the ability to save. <laughs> the power to save. In other words, a God who has all power because it takes every bit of power to save a wretch from hell. First, false gods we see in this text are powerless. I love how in verse 4, and actually all throughout this book, Jeremiah is a little bit sarcastic. You notice that? I tend to enjoy sarcasm. And Jeremiah is a writer who writes with some sarcasm. So, for instance, in verse 4, he, he, uh, verse 3 and 4, he, he's like, let me tell you where they get these gods from. First, it begins with a tree. And then a craftsman comes along, and he cuts down the tree. And then he shapes it, and he fashions it with gold and with silver. Oh, and then he puts some nails in it, verse 4, so that it cannot move. To fasten it in place. And then in verse 5, this is like the funniest description of idols. He says their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Just, I just love the picture. Let me tell you about you. They're like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Why a cucumber field? I don't know. He's just a good writer. And he wants to communicate the fact that their gods are just stupid. He uses the word stupid quite a bit throughout here, by the way. They're powerless. They cannot save. I mean, a scarecrow has some power when it comes to the crows. You know, it does something for you out there. There's some, like, immediate effect that you get from having a scarecrow, but that's about it. It's not moving. It's nailed. It can't speak. He goes on in verse 5, it can't be carried, or it has to be carried, because it cannot walk. And by the way, it won't do you evil because it doesn't exist. And 
it won't do you any good either. Verses. Verse 6, the God of Israel has power. In verse 6, he says, God is great. In verse 7, he says, God is to be feared, and he is wiser than all other kings. Think about this, the kings of Babylon, Assyria, the enemies that you dread, North Korea. God is more powerful than any nuclear whatever that can come our way. He's got more power than the greatest ruler in the land. He's got more wisdom than the person who you think is the wisest and the scariest. Meaning this, to sum it up, church, God has the ability to save. I mean, we're seeing this theme all through Jeremiah that they have a heart problem. How do you save somebody who has a cold heart? I've, I've been in like counseling sessions and talking to people where I just wish that I could get into their heart and redirect their desires, kind of like an antenna, and, and just shape them in such a way where they get it. I can't do that. God can. This is what God does through the power of the Holy Spirit is he comes into our life and he gives us a new heart. You need a God who not only can speak, not only can move, but a God who can give you a new heart. That's the God who has all power. That's the God who has the ability to save. Secondly, we need a God who is not made. A God who's not made. Look at verses 9 and 10. Before we get into these verses, let me just illustrate this. In my early years of preaching, if I preached a bad sermon, I would be devastated. I'd be like, I'm worthless. I suck. I'm terrible. People hate me. People think I'm a bad preacher. Fact is, nobody even knew I preached a bad sermon because they slept through it. <laughs> but I wasn't thinking like that. What was going on there? Well, I was preaching God-glorifying truths. <laughs> I, was pre I might preach a sermon on not finding your identity in what you do. But I don't preach that sermon well, and I'm miserable. Why? because I'm finding my identity in what I do. My God is something that I'm making. And if my God is something that I'm making, then my God is ultimately attached to me. That means it's ultimately up to me to save myself. But looking at the text here, these false gods are limited by creation. Jeremiah continues with his sarcasm in verse 9. He's, he basically is saying here, let me tell you where these gods come from. Beaten silver from Tarshish, gold from Euphos. The, the, the work of craftsmen, of goldsmith, of skilled men. Do you notice how he's saying like earth, 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 these are gods from the earth? These are gods made from materials from the earth, from cities on the earth, made by people who are attached to and from the earth. And then he contrasts this. He's going back and forth. But God is a true God. 
He's a living God, and He's an everlasting God. He gives us three descriptors there that you cannot attach to these idols who are made. God is true. He's right. Meaning He's not false like one of these gods. But He's real. He's, He's legit. He's genuine. He exists. He's living. He's alive. These other gods are dead. And even dead doesn't quite communicate it because that kind of assumes they once existed. They never did. Our God is a living God. A God who was the same yesterday, today, and forever. A God who, he goes on, is the everlasting king. Which means he's been living for a very long time. Everlasting is another word for eternal. He is eternal. Think all the way back to the beginning of creation. God was living then. Well, how about going beyond creation? Before anything was created. Before there was ever an angel created. God was living. God has always lived. God is the eternal God. If you try to figure out how this world exists without God, it will just ruin your mind. Because something had to exist in order for something else to exist. And we can kind of keep taking that back and and, and it gets us back to this place where either something always existed, which always was making something else for all of eternity, or there is a being which has eternally lived and existed. And that's the Christian story. The Christian answer is that God is eternal. He is a living God, He is a living King, meaning He's always been ruling and reigning. Compare that to your gods. Compare that to these false saviors. If my God depends on me, then I am ultimately trying to save myself. I need a God that I am not creating, but I need a God who has created me in order to be saved. Thirdly, we need a God who has made all things. This is just the other side. We need a God who is not made. We need a God who is the maker. The God who has made all things. He goes on with his comparing and contrasting. He says the false gods will perish from the earth. Look at verse 11. Thus you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. The false gods are attached to the earth. And when the earth perishes, when it fades, what will fade with it? Everything that is attached to the earth. Comparing this to God, verse 12. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom. Verse 13, He utters His voice, and there is a tumult of waters in the heaven. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from His storehouses. God is the maker of the earth. God is independent of the earth. Meaning, the trees that you're using to craft into idols, 
Those trees were made by God. The bodies that you tend to lift up and celebrate and worship as beautiful, those bodies were made by God. The money, the riches, the wealth that we tend to worship and go after and seek and find our happiness in God is the creator of wealth. The power that we are always trying to grab for ourselves, influence over other people, manipulation, the gods that we create of power. God gave us power. God is power. He is all power. Meaning the false gods are all tied to this world. Let me just use money as an example. Hugh Hefner. You guys know who Hugh Hefner is? He is celebrated as one of the most successful people. You know, a lot of people would look up to Hugh Hefner and say, man, that's the life right there. He's got all this money with this magazine. He's got this big mansion. He's got all of these, these, these wives. Objectifying women all over the place. Honestly, for a lot of fallen, wicked men, that's the life. Where is his mansion now? It wasn't buried with him. It's still here. I think they're going to make a museum out of it or something. Where's his money? It didn't go with him. Where are a lot of the women that he's objectified? Many of them jaded. My point is this. He didn't take anything with him. As far as I know, when he, was, when he died, he was buried by himself in the ground with nothing. Why? It's because all of these gods are attached to the earth and they can't save They ultimately can't do anything for you. They are fading. And so as you fade, and then therefore as your gods fade, you have no Savior. You have no God that can actually save. I am a dependent creature. I'm dependent on oxygen in order to survive. I'm dependent on gravity in order to survive. God created oxygen. God created gravity. God is independent of all of his creation. What that means is as the world fades, God remains. Central to the Bible's story is that God made all things and that God, because of sin, now is remaking all things, including people. Now, when this world fades and perishes, All who have rejected Christ will perish with the world. You need a Savior that is not dependent on this world, but a Savior that can take you into the next. Lastly, we need a God who is worthy, verses 14 through 16. We need a God who is worthy. I remember years ago when I was a kid, actually, I uh, saw some counterfeit money. And it looked like real money. You had to have a a specialist tell you how to tell that it was counterfeit. 
Now, you know what counterfeit money can buy you? It's kind of a trick question. It can first actually buy you something. It can get you something. Counterfeit money can get you something. But it ultimately ends up, and thank you, Maria, in your destruction. This is the way counterfeit gods work. They'll buy you something. They'll give you some kind of temporal relief. They'll give you some kind of instant gratification. They will make you feel good for a moment. But ultimately, family, they will, they will end in your destruction. The false gods he shows us are all counterfeit gods. Look at verse 15. He says, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. What does he mean by goldsmiths are put to shame by his idols? idols. Well, he goes on and he says they are worthless. They're a work of delusion. And at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. What he's saying is, is that you're spending all of this time crafting this God out of wood. And when the world perishes, that God is going to burn up right in front of you. And you, have, you, the craftsmen, have been hoping in this thing that you've built. And now you're watching it burn. That, my friends, it's shame. Every God outside of the God of Israel that you long for and want will ultimately bring you shame. But the God of Israel is worthy. Look at verse 16. He says he's not like these. Not like these is the portion of Jacob. He is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then Jeremiah goes on from there for the rest of the chapter with an eviction notice. And he says, it's time for you to leave. Because I am the landlord, says God, of this property. And we had a covenant. And I was to be your one God. But you have rejected me. And as a result, verse 17, get your bundle together, gather up your things, and move out. This is my land. The idols that we create bring us shame because they are not worthy of us. Think about it. What is worthy of you? The only thing worthy of you and your worship is a God who is beyond all that can be seen and touched. Meaning, if, if God is the one who made beauty, and we tend to idolize beauty, lift it up, desire it, want it, but if God is the one who made beauty, then that means that God is more beautiful than the most beautiful sight you can find here on this earth. And so anything that you can see right now with your eyes that's beautiful is not worthy of you. Only God is worthy of your affections. I could go on with some illustrations. If God is the one who has created sex. 
then that means that he is better than any high that eroticism can bring us. And so therefore, sex is not worthy of your worship. If God is the God of all power, then there is no amount of influence over anyone that can ultimately be worthy of your worship. Only the God of all power is worthy of your worship. If God is the owner of all things, He owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. All that is in this world is ultimately His. Then money, that little bit you're chasing after, is not worthy of you. Only God is worthy of your passions and your desires and your worship. We need, church, a Savior who saves. If my Savior is peace and quiet, then every time my phone rings or the kids cry, my Savior fails me. I need a God who can give me peace when there is no quiet. If, if my Savior is acceptance by other people, then every time someone criticizes me, criticizes me, or every time I fail in front of someone else, guess what? My Savior fails me. I need a God who is there when I've failed in front of other people. I need a God who affirms me when others criticize me. If my God is beauty, then when beauty fades and your hair starts falling out, there we go. Your God fails you. It fails you, Montrell. You need a God. You need a God who is more beautiful than all of the fading beauty in this world. If my God is sex, then every time the bedroom door closes and there's nothing happening, my God has failed me. I need a God who gives me greater, a greater sense of fulfillment than any amount of sex can give me in life. If my God is drugs or pornography or the high of all of these things, every time the screen closes, my God will fail me. Every time the high wears off, my God will ultimately let me down. I need a God who can give me a high beyond any substance this world can give us. Amen. If my God is my kids, then when my kids go off to college, when they find a wife or a husband, when they get married and they get into a job and they have other things to focus on and they're not calling dad as much, if that's my God, then, then my Savior will fail me every time. All four of them. I need, <laughs> I need a Savior that I can introduce my kids to. And if my God is my spouse, or if your God is your spouse, or if your God is in desiring a spouse... 
we are placing on that person or on that would-be person something that they are not wired to carry and something that they can never, never fulfill, and this desire will always fail you. You need a God who can save. You need a Savior who actually saves. And friends, that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a Savior that can save even if you never get a spouse. He's a Savior that can save even if your kids abandon you. He's a Savior that can save when all of the highs wear off and you're left with nothing but guilt. He's a Savior that saves even when the beauty fades. And He's a Savior that saves when all of the world rejects you. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. All of the false gods in this world are carried, as Jeremiah says. We need a Savior who can carry us when our bodies fail us. All of the false gods in this world are nailed into place so that they cannot move. Listen, we have a Savior who was nailed to a tree. We have a Savior who was nailed in place. Think about this with me for a moment. The, the God of this world, temporarily for a moment, was nailed into place. He became immobile. So that those of us who are trusting in trees, so that those of us who are trusting in immobile idols might actually be saved. He took on Him in that moment all of our sin and all of our idolatry. And the God of this world paid the price for our idolatry. But even the nails couldn't keep him. Three days later, he broke from the ground, rose from the dead to be the Savior. The one who has the power to save us from hell, from death, from the shackles of sin. This Savior is Jesus Christ. All of the false gods of this world are gods who have never had life. Our God is the God of life who came into this world, who gave up His life so that we might have life, who rose from the dead, giving us the assurance that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn to Him. Turn from all of your saviors and turn to Christ alone. Amen? Father, we thank You that, that You have given us in Jesus Christ a Savior who saves, who has the ability to save. God, we thank You for Your incredible grace as You have given us Your salvation. As we are still in this flesh and as we are prone toward looking at other saviors, flirting with other saviors, being pulled toward finding our identity and our hope and our security in other saviors. God, I pray that you will continue to remake us. Give us a new mind, new heart, so that we might see Christ, so that each day we might cling to Christ more. Help us on this journey, God, so that we might be saved. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.